you know, ask people when they use their prosthesis, we put on their, their prosthesis and we had them use it without sensation, without this ability to feel. Yeah. And they basically say it's a tool. I have a tool on the end of my arm. It's like if you or I take a hammer or do something like that and use it as a tool. As soon as we turn that sensation on, as soon as we give them that sense of touch back where they feel their hand, they immediately say it's my hand. The language is completely different. It's no longer a tool, but they're actually feeling their hand doing a task. We'll ask them to pick something up and they will say, it's my hand. I'm picking it up with my hand, even though it's a prosthesis. Welcome to another episode of ThinkBox Radio, a podcast inspired by Sears ThinkBox, the Innovation Center at Case Western Reserve University. Our goal is to share some of the magic that happens at the Case School of Engineering and to inspire your own innovations and startups. ThinkBox Radio is produced by Lillian Messner and sponsored by the Case Alumni Association. Now let's meet our host, Robert Smith, the former economic development reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Hello, everybody. I'm Robert Smith, and welcome to another edition of ThinkBox Radio, coming to you via Zoom in these pandemic times. Our guest today is Case alumnus Dustin Tyler, professor of biomedical engineering and the director of the new Human Fusion Institute at Case Western Reserve University. What you should know about Dustin is this. He's at the leading edge of neural engineering. He creates technology that connects your brain to your muscles so that people who are paralyzed can move again or so that a person who loses a hand can feel again. He's at that amazing edge of biomedical engineering and we're excited he's here to talk with us today. Today. Dustin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate it. So I'd like to start with the movie, I Am Human. It's a documentary about the work of you and your fellow researchers here in University Circle. It tells the story of how brain-computer connections change the lives of three people. I was at the winter premiere in Playhouse Square, and it was amazing to me to see 500 people filling a Hannah Theater for a movie about engineering about biomedical engineering. And I know you were there. How did it feel to watch the film and to have a movie made about your work? Actually, I mean, it was really exciting to see the film. Um, and I more like working with the producers while we were making the film, honestly. When I go watch the film, of course, I get nervous because <laughs> you don't really know what it was oh. going to be and how it came out. So watching the film itself was you know, it's just weird to see it up on screen, quite honestly. What I really liked is that they talked about the meaning of what we were doing, uh, you know, and I think that they captured that very well in the film. And the film, at some points, I think I got too much about the technology, quite honestly, because I think at the end of the day, what drives me, what motivates the work I do, and what really makes it um, useful or um, exciting for what we do is to see the difference we can make on the people. And I like the fact that they captured the human story in there. And oh. I think that, you know, oh, it, right. You know, and, and I think that at the end of the day, we get tied up in the technology sometimes. And we kind of uh, tell you sit and talk with these individuals and spend time doing the research with them. And you hear what it's like to to live with this the spinal cord injury they have. And then to be able to see that you can make a difference to actually bring back something they thought they lost or allow them to reengage in life yeah. is actually the most motivating piece for the work. The technology is so small at the uh -huh. end of the day. But it was so cool. irrelevant compared to the rest. So uh, that's what I like about it. Well, I, so I should tell our, our listeners. So the star of the show was the late Bill Kochabar, uh, a Cleveland guy who was paralyzed in a bicycle accident. And the film tracks his progress as you and your colleagues try to get his brain to communicate with his muscles and let him move his arms and hands again. And I remember feeling a chill when he finally raises that forkful of potatoes to his mouth and the audience erupted in applause to see that work. 
Yeah, it's amazing how that goes. And, uh, you know, I have to say that this is uh, Blue Ajaboy and Bob Kirsch. This is really a lot of what they've been doing and Blue's work of getting to the brain connection. I've been working with them for a long time and how we, once you get it from the brain, which uh, Dr. Ajaboy is doing, how do you actually get it into the muscles and get the muscles to work? And that's the unique piece I've been working with Bob Kirsch for a long time on that. We're, we're hoping to continue that work, actually. Well, not hoping. We are continuing that work. We're driving some of the more technology direct to the nerves to give more function. So when we watched that film, you know, uh, I, I use that actually. So you talk about Bill Kochevar actually raising potatoes to his mouth. And what I take away from that, I use this when I uh, present to incoming students potentially here at Case Western Reserve University. When I, when I present that, he says it was a really exciting day when I could eat mashed potatoes really well. And what is ex- exciting to me about that is the technology was able to get him to eat mashed potatoes. The telltale part is that simply eating mashed potatoes made a huge impact on his life. And it tells us where we are in the sense that how much of an impact even the simplest things make and how much further we have yet to go to improve this technology. So it's not just eating mashed potatoes, but going on to other activities of daily living that all of us take for granted. That, um, you know, when you have the sort of uh, injury that uh, Bill had, this high-level quadriplegic injury, uh, it really significantly changes life. And we have to take, uh, you know, we have to appreciate what we have. And then if we can provide something to give it back to them, it's just uh, uh, makes it all worthwhile, basically. Beautiful. It came out in the movie. Um, Dustin, what is the technology that got us to where we are? I know it's 20 years of research for you, but can you help our listeners understand kind of the, the foundational technology at work here? Yeah, so back to actually beginning probably in the 1960s or so, or even way back before that in times of, uh, you know, Galvani, where there was the ability to add small bits of, little bits of electricity that would make a muscle move or contract. And of course, when it originally came out, they didn't really know how that was and led to movies like Frankenstein and all these reanimation pieces. But what's happened in the science, and particularly in the last 40 to 50 years, is that we have a really good understanding of how electrical information, what we can create and what's really been sort of the boom of the 20th century of using computers and electrical information can directly connect to the nervous system. So how do we apply a little bit of current into the nervous system to get it to activate? And the beauty of this is when we, uh, when you interact with, and the way I think about this is the nerve of the body is essentially the wire, if you will, within the body that carries information from the brain to the muscles or from the sensors of the hand back to the brain and then communicates in the brain. That wire, once if we tap into it somewhere, once we get that uh, excited, once we do our little current, it goes down to the muscle and the muscle behaves as though the brain connected it. And so what we've been doing uh, in, in this time is developing the technology that interfaces with that wire, that connects to that nerve whether it be in the muscle directly or what I've been doing is on the nerve itself, to be able to activate these, uh, these wires in very specific way, the nerves, so that we can make the muscles work like we need them to work. Um, and that's, there's a lot of detail in that because you can imagine um, if you think about your arm, we don't actually think about it very much, but if you think about your hand, there's tiny thousands of little fibers in there. We call them, you know, there's the muscle and there's sure. a couple of big ones, but each of those has lots of fibers. So in one of these wires, if you will, it's really not one wire. It's a bundle of maybe 17,000 little wires going in there. And so how we interact with that in a way that we can actually activate those wires in somehow a, a reasonable fashion to make the hand work in some approx- 
approximation as it used to work or convey that between the brain and that is a lot of the development that we've been doing in terms of the technology to uh, move that stuff forward. And so we've been working on one side is communicating the interface um, connection to the nervous system. So how do we build that technology? The other part of it is the, the, the body speaks neural language, not electrical language. So we have to learn that language. Right. And so a lot of the work that we, yeah, so there's a lot of basic neuroscience, the, you know, our colleagues in the neuroscience department and uh, looking at and studying how the brain talks to the systems and how sensory information is conveyed from the hand back to the brain. So we use a lot of that information from our colleagues. And then we try to, uh, through the, you know, the human computer systems, if you will. So let's say, for example, um, uh, let me walk through the example of Bill for, for, uh, for this. Uh, for yeah. here. So we've been building technology, my colleagues and myself, that we can stick into the brain that can record these little signals running around the brain, which is essentially the CPU of the body, right? I mean, for a very simplistic case, it's much different. It's much more complex than a computer. But you can record these little activities happening in the brain. What Baloo Ajaboy does is then he takes those little signals converts them, you know, runs it through our algorithms to learn what the guy, what the person, what Bill was thinking he wanted to do. So you take it from the brain and then what he wants to do for moving his hand, we convert that into computer language, right? So we understand what his intent is. And then we have to convert it so back. So you tell Bill, you tell Bill what to be thinking about, and then you look at what's happening in his brain as he thinks. Yeah, so this is in the in the early learning part where we're learning how the brain works. Um, so Blue would ask him to do, you know, think about moving your hand or think about moving your muscle, think about moving your arm. And while doing okay. that, we're recording that activity. So we're learning how when he intends to do something, we learn what the activity of the brain is. And then we, as we learn that, then the computer starts to make these associations between the language of the brain, these activities in the brain, and the intent of what was meant to be done. And then when that yeah. one wants to go eat the mashed potatoes, we're recording from the brain. And then yeah. when he starts to think about, hey, I want to move my arm, we can pick up that information from the brain. And then we say, oh, he needs to move his arm. Yeah. And our job is to change that into the um, what the body normally does. We have to figure out then how do we take our interface, which moves the muscles, to give him that same motion that he would have done if the brain, if the if the spinal cord, if he didn't have an injury in the spinal cord, and the brain could directly connect to the muscles. So all of that is, you know, basically we're bridging okay. that gap, if you will. Right? We have the brain, we have a broken spinal cord, and then we have the muscles. What Blue and our teams are doing, and myself and and Bob, is take that information from the brain, bridge that gap through the electronic systems that we have external, and then put it back into the body to operate like it was supposed to do. And so that translation pace in the middle is, um, you know, as you can imagine, fairly complex. And so learning that language, how do we do it reliably? How do we get the right communication is what a lot of the work that we're doing and, you know, myself and basically a really strong team in Cleveland of probably 30 to 40 different investigators working on this area and and related areas to do. Um, And that's that's really the key of making this whole thing work to, you know, at the end of the day. For him to raise his hand and eat mashed potatoes is a really a pretty significant piece of engineering work in the middle that, that again, is insignificant compared to him eating, but takes a lot of work to get there. And so everything oh, from the wow. algorithms to learn the brain to the communication pieces that talk to or connect to the body, all of those parts have to come together in one system. Wow. So years of research, trial and error, and you had a measure of success. Um, Bill, you know, at the movie, they called him a research hero. He died in 2017. Now you're moving on to the encore, what you guys call the rehab system. 
the Department of Defense gave you guys $3 million to build upon what you learned from BrainGate. Am I right? So again, this is, um, yeah, so this is, uh, again, Blue Ajaboy is the is the the PI of that. And so they have the work to continue that. And this is where he and I are collaborating a bit more than we did even on Bill Kochevar. So um, the technology that they used there was really focused on the brain and recording that component. And the, the technology used for moving his arm was based on work that Hunter Peckham and uh, others have done through uh, functional electrical stimulation for many years. And they were directly going to the muscle. I won't get into the details of that. What we do and where uh, my work has been is actually directly talking to those wires I was talking about, to the nerves. And so the, the, the details of the technology aren't super important for this conversation, but basically we're upping the technology to the, to the uh, so blue still records from the brain. We're trying to get more sophisticated technology for him to do more or the next person to do more complex functions because we can take more information from the brain and feed it back into the arm to make it move in a more complex way um, is the goal. So we're taking technology and evolving it to, um, again, the focus of the original work with Bill was focusing on the brain recording part. And they used available technology okay. for many years for the motion. Now we're trying to make take the most advanced work that we've been doing for the motion part and connect it with what they've been doing for the brain. So we're upgrading both parts of that system to connect for the next round of these experiments. We're going to pause for a moment here for a word from our sponsor, the Case Alumni Association. Thinkbox Radio is brought to you by the Case Alumni Association, which represents the engineering, science, and math graduates of Case Western Reserve University. We're the oldest independent alumni association of engineering and applied science graduates in America. Have you heard of us? If not, you've heard of our graduates. Case grads include Henry Dow, the founder of Dow Chemical, Frank Rudy, the inventor of the Nike Airsole, Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail, and Jeanette Griselli-Brown, the first female director of corporate research at BP America. At Case, we're proud of our spirit of discovery and innovation, which is why we support ThinkBox, the world-class innovation center at the Case School of Engineering. Dustin, do you see a day when a paraplegic will be able to get up and walk or someone who's lost a hand will get an artificial hand that works pretty well? Yeah, uh, we're not that far from those days now, actually. Um, really? I think it depends what you mean by get up and walk. We can get people out of the uh, the chair now for a paraplegic. I work with Dr. Ron Triolo and his team that actually gets people to get up that are paraplegic. Um, and so these are, I think the question you ask is, yes, we can get people to walk now, but they're paraplegic. And so they still have control over the trunk and everything else. So you can imagine walking is a, is a very difficult challenge to keep from falling over um, because of its, the, the dynamics of the system. So with people with just a lower extremity, we can get the legs to work, but trying to coordinate all of the upper body work to do that is still something that the person themselves control. So the work is to try and take, you know, be able to connect to higher and higher different levels. So we can do that now. Do I see the day that, uh, I mean, the vision is someday, and this is work that DARPA is actually sponsoring right now in this uh, program called BG plus. Um, if someday I'd like to see a spinal cord injured person, high level quadriplegic stand up and walk would be great. We're a long ways from that quite honestly. And I can say one of the other challenges you run into is that this is fortunately a relatively small population, but the motivation and the funding to do it is disproportionate to the funding that's needed. Um, and so it's, it's going to have to come in my personal opinion, if we're going to get to that day, other things are going to have to drive the technology forward. It's hard to say that, um, 
the amount of funding that currently is available and will go towards having a paraplegic or a quadriplegic person walk is probably insignificant or insufficient. It's not insignificant. It's actually quite significant, but it's insufficient to get us all the way over that hurdle with that alone. So I think we're going to have to, uh, I think as a field, uh, the, the nice thing about this time is that there is a lot of renewed interest in connecting the human in the machine. And we'll talk about that with the human fusions part, I think. Um, but uh, uh, so there's a lot of opportunity, but some of these cases are such a sort of a, a, a small market case that it's hard to get the sort of money to invest. And just to give you an example, uh, the, this difference, if you think of the Nintendo Wii, the handset that people use that vibrates a little bit and you can point at the screen, you know, yeah. kind of outdated now. But I think I heard at one time about a billion dollars with a B was put into the development of that handset to play, right? That's yeah. probably, you know, that's, that's multiples higher than we've had the total investment for people to get to walk. And so, that's yeah, so well, I don't know if it's terrible. It's just the way that works. Right. So I think that we have to be aware of that, that, you know, if you're, if you're going to invent, if you're going to develop something that's going to bring back billions of dollars in a gaming industry, you're going to recover those costs quickly. But in a spinal cord market where the, ex- the expenses, the development costs are still very high, you're not going to have that kind of market return, right? So I think what we need to do as a field and what I've been spending a lot of time on is thinking about where the technology we develop has a much broader application that can help support these things. So if we're going to get people with an artificial hand, it's not going to be the hand development that's going to bring us there all the way to what we want to get to. It's going to come to bigger areas where the, that, that technology has other uses that the people for prosthetic hand or those that have spinal cord injury can benefit from if we're going to make it large market, just because that's the, the nature of the beast, unfortunately. Okay. So I, I think that um, this, this has been a big thing in my mind and probably for the last, I would say, six years, actually. And we can talk about the details of why without going down that road now. But uh, how do we get this stuff out of the labs? It's, it's awesome. You're asking me what I was thinking about watching the I Am Human film. I think it's um, awesome to see what we can do. I also think it's very sad that the number of people that are going to get the hold of that are on that screen at the moment. Right. And so... Uh. You know, how do we make this more than a cool film that people can be excited about to actually make it available for people that need it? And I think that's one of the things I spend a lot of time besides watching that happen and being excited about for the one case. We need to be able to make these things work for everybody that has this injury and not just the one person we can see. And that is a real challenge outside the technical realm as well. Oh, my. Well, is that might lead us to the Human Fusion Institute, which was recently launched, and you're the director. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing as an institute, you're going to be looking at more than just the technology, but how you can bring it to more people. Mm-hmm. But um, you tell us, what is, uh, uh, what is the Human Fusion Institute and what are you going to be doing there? Yeah, so the basic idea behind the Human Fusions and um, – so what we're what we're doing there? Let me actually back up just a step to what started this because I think it helps understand what sure. the human fusions is bigger, right? So the other work that I've been doing quite a bit is in the area of prosthetics and people that, uh, and we can explore this more if you're so interested later. But in the area of prosthetics, we are um, when somebody loses their hand. So let's just start there as the simple case. Uh, when you have a limb loss, 
Um, people lose their hand and we often think about the technology, but everybody I've ever talked to in our study that's come in, I ask them what they want returned. And the first thing they always say is I want to hold my wife's hand. I want to hold my kid's hand or something. It's the fact that we lose connection, the sense of touch, our sense of connecting to the world is actually as important as anything else. And when we start, so we have the technology where we can return that sense of touch. And I'd be happy to talk about that. It'll come up as we go. But what we've been doing in one, in another set of studies is we take this technology we talked about with the, um, spinal cord injury and Bill Kochevar, but we've also been putting it on the same wires because those wires that I told you earlier go to the muscle also go to the sensory feedback, right? So the, the fingertips, for example, where you feel something you touch, that information conveyed from your fingertip is carried through that wire as well. So when the hand is lost, the wire is still there, but the, the sensors are gone. So now if we tap back into that wire, so the same exact technology, so it's like I said before, it has a broader aspect of use. If I put it into that wire, and I turn on that current, I can also get information that goes up to the brain, not down to the muscles, but to the brain. And so if I activate those neurons, the wires that carry the information that used to go to the fingertip, just like the muscle can activate as though the brain did it, if I send the information to the brain, it'll activate as though it came from the finger. It doesn't know the difference. It didn't know that I did it electrically. And so they will feel, feel their fingertip. And so the return of sensation for somebody that's lost their hand basically is they say, I have my finger back, even though they have no finger, but the wow. brain interprets it to be their hand. The beautiful thing about that and what leads to this idea of human fusions then is that um, we've asked people when they use their prosthesis, we put on their, their prosthesis and we had them use it without sensation, without this ability to feel. Yeah. And they basically say it's a tool. I have a tool on the end of my arm. It's like if you or I take a hammer or do something like that, use it as a tool. As soon as we turn that sensation on, as soon as we give them that sense of touch back where they feel their hand, they immediately say it's my hand. The language is completely different. It's no longer a tool, but they're actually feeling their hand doing a task. We'll ask them to pick something up and they will say, it's my hand. I'm picking it up with my hand, even though it's a prosthesis. So to your earlier question, and when are we going to return people's hands? I think we're pretty close to this perspective that they feel like it's their hand. But here's where the, the interesting part comes, right? So that was, we did a lot of work on that. But the thing is, this is the, you can call it a prosthesis, but effectively it's a robot. It is a machine, right? And okay. I can put that hand, I mean, think about this. I could take that prosthesis and I could put it anywhere in the world. And I still get that information on the fingertip. It's transmitted over the web. It's transmitted over whatever systems. And I apply it back to the individual. It'll still be their hand. They will still feel their hand. Even though I could put that thing in the bottom of the ocean, or I can send anything, a sensor from the bottom of the ocean, I can put it in. They will feel their finger touch whatever it is in the ocean. Hmm. So now the interesting part about this is that that means that my sense of self, the extent of where I am, where my hand is in space, isn't limited by the physical location of my hand. It's where I can connect that information to you. And so now, and this is where the fusions idea comes in, this idea that... Um, that the human and the technology can work in a symbiotic manner. They can be this, they can work directly together. And the sense is that um, let's take, for example, if you have a, uh, and, and one of the areas we're working on right now is a, as a healthcare robotics in the time of COVID, unfortunately, there's a lot of challenges. And even though we put people in isolation, you wear PPE, our healthcare professionals are basically getting sick much more rapidly than the population in general and are in much higher risk because they have to go interact with the patient because the robotic systems that exist alone can't do it. But what if 
for example. Let's take what I just said, and let's say I put the prosthesis on the end of a robotic system, just for argument's sake. Now, what used to be one of our people using a hand, which I've just said is a fairly good representation of a hand now on their forearm, but now it's on a robotic system in the room. So if we can connect the doctor to that hand, right, and then he touches virtually, so in his, isolated from the patient in his office, for example, puts on a virtual headset, can see where the robot is. The robot looks like his body next to the patient. He reaches out to touch the, the person's hand or, you know, put a thermometer in and feels all that as though he's there. He now essentially is the robot that's in with the patient, right? Does that make sense? That's powerful. Yeah, it makes sense. Totally powerful. So what that is, is that person is not competing with the robot. We're not robots versus us. It's not AI taking over for the human. What it is, is the human actually embodying, becoming part of that robotic system in a symbiotic way. So now the doctor's intelligence, the doctor's capabilities of doing things can still be part of that robot because the robot doesn't, the robot's being controlled completely by the doctor somewhere else. So whatever the doctor would do in the office, he's or in with the patient, he's doing in his office that's away from the subject. The robot's in there, which is not going to get sick, right? The robot's not going to get sick. So we don't have to worry about that. But the doctor's feeling it. So the robot's moving like the doctor. The doctor's feeling what the robot's feeling. And so he's basically working with the patient, but at a distance. So by inhabiting this robotic system, you've kind of created this fused relationship, this symbiotic connection between the human and the machine. Oh, wow. And so that's where the difference between what we did with or the extension of what we did, with the prosthetics or even with the motor control of connecting to that motor system and like the I am human. We now turn that around and connect that out to the robotic system. So now the robot becomes an extension of who we are, it becomes us. In fact, that is the idea of the human fusions that you're no longer limited by your skin. Right. So we're basically taking the boundaries, the physical boundaries of the body away, converting the human experience to a digital experience. And now you can be anywhere you want to be in the world. Now, I wonder if that kind of uh, taking it to that level is powerful enough. You start getting Nintendo like investment. For sure. I mean, this when this goes back to a bit of the earlier conversation, right? That's a place where as we can develop the technology, there's there is the market to support that development. And then what will benefit from that is there's the technology evolves in Nintendo or gaming or even entertainment, right? I mean, we, and I could, we could come up with a million examples of where this is useful in a much different way. And we've thought about a lot of them. Um, if you do that, now there's a market that is, is going to have the potential billion dollars investment. Our technology evolves and then comes back and then benefits people like Bill Kochevar and the prosthetics users now the technology has evolved because of gaming and other large market uses. It's just like the stuff we use now, the technology used in medical systems didn't come out of medical systems. It came out of space and communications and all these other parts. Those drove the medical use. We happen to use it to benefit the human, you know, the human condition, human health. But the core technology comes from different areas. And the same thing could apply here was if we could use these core interface technologies in a broader area that has an application far more than spinal cord injury or um, limb loss, then those people are going to benefit from that. And so we've really been looking at not biomedical engineering is more as the bio interface, the inner, the uh, connection engineering. That's what human fusion's goal is, is to be able to say, how do we develop this interface to the human in a much more functional? So that's part of the fusions is this functional symbiotic integration. And that's where we think the value is, is tremendous actually. Why? Well, certainly the university um, has endorsed it. it um, at least it has started the, 
the Institute. What's the, what's the first step you take? So uh, we've been forming a lot of different teams because one of the things we started about early on from this is the, the engineering side is cool. We can connect to the human. But once you start thinking yeah. about the scenarios and everything, again, as I mentioned earlier, the technology is a very small part of what we do. Because then the second part of this, we have to think about the ethics. So if you think about this philosophically, right, if I can take the human experience and put it anywhere in the world, or if I have this sense of me connecting over the world, that leaves a lot of ethical issues. Now, so what if somebody hacked into that sense of you, right? So if I'm feeling something and somebody hacks oh, into my data stream, now I'm feeling something totally different or pain or whatever, right? Yeah. So around the technology, the next sort of level is going to we have to work together with is the ethics. What is the ethics? What are the, um, the uh, security issues that go around this connection of the human uh, on a broader perspective? And then our, from that is what is the, le- the regulatory and legal framework by which we develop that system? And then you have sort of the entrepreneurial side about it. And then you have the social change, right? The sociology of this, because you start to think about what it can do to the culture as a whole and how does that work? And these become iterative loops. So in setting up human fusions, the reason we set this up beyond just another research project is we need to bring in all these disciplines from the beginning. So we want to talk to the ethicists about what we should be doing and build into that the core technologies that keep the ethical approach at the front. Because the thing is, we've seen in other examples, and I won't name anything, but we know examples. What's that? Like Facebook. I didn't name it, but that's exactly one of the ones I think about because it's a very successful technology, but it's open up now. You get billions of people using it, and it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Okay. Yeah. You know, so we want to think about it from the beginning to build in the course. We don't end, you will never be perfect, but we're trying to eliminate as much as we can down the road. Right. So by, by having people thinking about these things from the day one, we can bake into the technology, the safety and the, and the security pieces. So the Institute is a very broad thinking. It's sociology, it's ethics, it's legal, it's religion, it's medical, it's all these different components that come together to formulate this idea of the human technology mix. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of movies that look at this in a very dystopic way. I mean, you can think of yeah. things like Black Mirror, if you've seen that or um, the cyborg from Star Trek series when I was growing up or all these different things that can look at the negatives of what could happen. But also there's a lot of things such as the Luke arm, which is the prosthetics where the machine and the human work together. So I think we have to like any technology, as Kennedy said during the space race. Right. Technology itself has no conscious. It's how we use it and develop it. And so we need to develop it with a conscious from the beginning since the technology is used right. It shouldn't stop the technology. And we're at a point where we're at an unprecedented capability of connecting to the human. And that's the exciting part. But we have to do it responsibly and and reliably. And that's why we have a bigger team to think about all these different issues. Oh, man. So we we have a lot more to talk about in the future. Um, We're out of time today. But, Dustin, it's been fascinating. Um, We know the Human Fusion Institute is going to be making – new technology and news for years to come. So we're looking forward to having you back on the show, but thanks for being with us today. Happy to anytime, Bob. And thank you so much. And I appreciate your time. This has been Robert Smith and Dustin Tyler on ThinkBox Radio. And thanks for being with us, folks. And that concludes another episode of ThinkBox Radio, stories inspired by America's leading college innovation center. You can find past episodes on our website, casealum.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, our motto at Case Western Reserve University is think beyond the possible.